You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Those with ears to hear have heard no doubt that liberals and conservatives in American politics have polarized the federal system in unprecedented manners, with even one procedural vote threatening to produce a primary challenge for these candidates. Many have felt that partisan purity has overtaken real statesmanship. Many Americans not of the senatorial profession, many of my friends among them, no longer identify as conservative or liberal. Roger Scruton wants us to reconsider. In his recent book, How to Be a Conservative, available in paperback from Bloomsbury Continuum, Scruton presents conservatism as a philosophy of affirmation, granting the truth in capitalism and nationalism and environmentalism and liberalism without making any of the above a state ideology. Christian Humanist Profiles is glad to welcome him on the show to discuss the new book with us. Professor Scruton, thank you for coming on Christian Humanist Profiles. Oh, thank you for inviting me. How to Be a Conservative begins with an autobiography that establishes some of the distinctions that give the rest of the book its shape. Talk to our listeners for a moment about the difference between Margaret Thatcher and Thatcherism and how that difference plays into your philosophy. I think that distinction will pay dividends as we dig further into the book. Right. Uh, well, the, obviously Margaret Thatcher was a, a, a leader, somebody who found a situation which she didn't accept, but was able to uh, organ, uh, to assemble the people behind her so that uh, just whatever we thought... Uh, at least we trusted her basic judgment in things, and I think this this uh, yeah, uh, the sense that she was identified with the nation and had the common interest at heart made a lot of difference to British politics at the time. And Thatcherism is another thing altogether, because of course she, like all uh, leaders, she had to have a, a philosophy or something that she could say she represented and she didn't necessarily get the words the right words to express it and they gathered behind her a whole gang of people who identified her uh, with um, what is now known as neoliberalism the 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 philosophy of the free market uh, and, and global trade and so on which was not uh, not explicitly her philosophy at all she was much more an old-fashioned patriot who nevertheless of course did uh, esteem freedom in the same way that Ronald Reagan did, but not as a, a kind of dogmatic absolute. Yeah, and that's, like I said, the distinction that I saw playing out over and over in this book is that you acknowledge at every turn the truth within various philosophies, but mm. your main concern is that when they become absolute, when they stop existing for the sake of the community, but become the end for which the the community exists, then they become idols of sorts. I mean, is that yes. a fair summary uh, of your a, big... Yeah, you know, it's a very good summary of of, uh, of one of the main strands, yes, in the book. Uh, I, I want to say that uh, that conservatism, although it is called conservatism, is not really an ism mm -hmm. in the way that, uh, you know, uh, liberalism, socialism, nationalism, and all those others are. It's not, it isn't uh, a comprehensive philosophy which replaces all the uh, the small-scale deliberations through which we as a community 
uh, advance from one stage of our lives to the next. Uh, and, you know, unfortunately, partly because of the decline of religion in public affairs, people in, in the 20th century and, and more recently have lent upon these isms to fill in the, the, the God-shaped hole in their universe. Mm-hmm. Well, as, a, as a, an alternative, and really an older alternative, and really that which ideology has supplanted, you offer tradition. Now, folks who listen to Christian Humanist podcasts of various sorts know that tradition occupies an important place when we attempt ethical inquiry on these shows. You mm-hmm. write about tradition, and I like this, fra- this phrasing, as embodied answers to enduring questions. What do the anti-traditional ways of living that you treat in this book miss when they abuse the body and ignore what endures? Yes, well, that, gosh, that's a really serious question. Uh, I mean, I, I see tradition very much as a, a continuous and, and developing thing. It's not something which is static. It's rather the, the way in which we pool our knowledge from generation to generation, that uh, we take advantage of what has gone before uh, and build on it uh, and stand corrected by it and also in our turn correct it. Uh, and this this process is one which I, I think requires not just humility from us and from that, those of us who are living now, but also respect for those who are not living now, those who are both either dead or, or not yet born. And that respect for absent generations uh, it, it does require of us a kind of decency in our own lives. You know, we're not here simply to have fun, to exploit the world's resources for our immediate pleasure uh, and um, get whatever uh, enjoyment we can while we can. We're here in order to inherit a bequest and pass it on insofar as we can undamaged. And that means living in in another and more sober way. Very good. Well, each of your book's middle chapters explores the truth of some significant idea uh, as we've mentioned already in passing, and some of your selections might surprise some of our listeners. Uh, we'll have occasion to dig into the truth of capitalism and nationalism and conservatism as we go, but what do conservatives and potential conservatives have to gain from thinking about the truth in environmentalism and internationalism and even socialism? Right. Well, you know, all these these philosophies, uh, in my view, are rooted in some sound instinct about what is at stake in um, in history and in community and in the world as a whole. And um, just to take environmentalism, because that's so popular now, you know, it is obviously the case that we are not in this world simply to use up the available resources regardless of what we leave behind we we have an obligation uh, to treat the earth and its contents with the kind of respect that we would hope it had been treated by our predecessors and likewise we want to pass on what our successors will need uh, and that means we do have to think seriously about the environment uh, and um, indeed when you think of what the word conservatism means one of the things that it means is conserving one's resources uh, and wise stewardship thereof. And that, I think, it, it immediately puts the environment somewhere near the top of a conservative's agenda. 
It doesn't mean that a conservative has got to be some kind of green activist constantly lying down in front of bulldozers or, you know, um, opposing the extraction of oil or whatever the, the fashionable cause of the day might be. But um, the obligation to think seriously about the planet is, is uh, there in our uh, situation uh, ab initio. And I think likewise with, um, with socialism, you know, w we live in a, at a time when people are extremely prosperous, uh, well, as worldwide prosperity, not everywhere, but it's growing all around the world. And with it, of course, the consumption of resources, but also the sense that our societies are getting bigger, more interconnected. We have to take seriously the needs and interests of, uh, of strangers. So everybody in our community has acquired some kind of importance for everybody else. And I think that's really the intuition behind socialism. You know, that you can't just turn your backs on those in the community who, uh, who have nothing to offer you. Um, you might have to be thinking about what you can offer them. Uh, and as long as you don't make this into an absolute doctrine of, uh, of equality and redistribution of assets and so on, as long as you recognize that it's simply a way of, of taking a charitable view to all those who are naturally connected to you, then I, I think you can't avoid, uh, avoid it as part, part of any acceptable politics in the time in which we live. Mm-hmm. As you dig into these, and, and like I said, our listeners should really check out the book because the sympathetic take on things that, at least in America, are anathema to the GOP mm. is really refreshing for a conservative book. But do you view engagement with these central questions of internationalism, socialism, so on and so forth, as part of that tradition that you talk about earlier? In other words, do you see tradition as inherently engaged with important questions that come up yes well uh, uh, just go, just on the subject of the GOP mm -hmm. obviously uh, practical politicians um, have a constituency that they're always appealing to and they're always afraid of losing the support of that constituency and that makes them hesitate to go into new areas uh, and to explore things which um, subjects and topics which might have been as it were already captured by the other side and this is this is a sad fact about uh, adversarial politics uh, and one reason why many people feel that the that the GOP doesn't represent what is best in conservatism now I, I'm a great supporter of the GOP insofar as an Englishman can be <laughs> uh, but I do recognize that it it turns its back on uh, the cultural uh, agenda, uh, on the, those things that matter to us because they're part of our cultural inheritance. Uh, and, and it's fairly blind to aesthetic matters, to the, to the sense of beauty and, and its importance in ordinary life and so on. Um, I would love to introduce those issues into the heart of political thinking, but it is difficult to do when... when um, and the, the politicians themselves have constantly to address their constituency, not, not just the people who fund them, but the people who vote for them as well. Uh, and, um, you know, that, that, that I, I do think, as you imply, that a proper respect for tradition would encourages us to address the issues that are 
that surround us uh, and incorporate them into our into our way of political thinking. Uh, and that is something we have to do as citizens. We can't rely on our political parties to do it for us. Mm -hmm. That's fair enough. Well, when you turn to nationalism, you note that in the grave crisis that we call the Second World War, the workers of England did not rise up with the workers of the world, but instead took up arms with their fellow Englishmen. Why is it that territory and custom and language make for such powerful imaginative bonds, given that, given that their supremacy is a relatively recent development compared to the primacy of the world-spanning Roman church? Yeah, gosh, this is a big question. Um, obviously, that loyalty to the nation, its territory and its language um, is, as you say, a relatively recent thing and, of course, hasn't developed everywhere. The real trouble with the Middle East today is that it hasn't developed there. Uh, and, uh, people don't actually have national loyalties. They have confessional loyalties. Um, so that one village, you know, a village of uh, Alawites next to a village of Orthodox Christians or a village of Sunni Muslims uh, will not, in a crisis, regard itself as sharing uh, um, their destiny, you know, so that the territory becomes marginalized. It's not our country. Syria is not ours. Um, of course, my confession and my little village is ours, but that's as far as it goes. And in such a circumstance, uh, countries collapse under the first uh, major blow, as we've seen. We are lucky uh, in Europe in that ever since the Peace of Westphalia in the mid-17th century, um, we have essentially defined our loyalties in national terms uh, and been able, therefore ready to defend ourselves in a crisis. And unfortunately, there is a downside to that, which is when the crisis came in the 20th century, uh, the, the national borders were invaded um, and there, there was no easy solution other than submission to, a, to the um, conquering power. Uh, and that is a situation in which we still find ourselves, except the conquering power is no, no longer uh, one that's imposed by force, but one that is imposed by a kind of treaty, mm. but it's still creating enormous tensions all across the continent. You Americans have the good fortune of being a self-conscious nation with borders on, at least for the most part, apart from the southern one, which are relatively secure. And within that, you can make decisions for your own future which, depend, which ensure relative social peace. When you turn to socialism, your critique is extensive, and I, I do encourage our listeners to pick this book up, even if for no other reason for the clarity of that chapter's arguments. Now, one line of, of that argument that I want to focus on right now is that socialism extends the duties of justice into the realm of charity. Uh, as you think of things, what territories of common life does justice properly govern, and when can we tell, when we think politically, when justice has overstepped into the realm of something else? Right. Yes. Uh, 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 my feeling about the, the, the realm where justice matters is, is, is that essentially this is the realm of your own 
personal interactions uh, and your own obligations towards those whom you've come across and who, with whom you are in some kind of connection. Uh, um, the the stranger is not necessarily dealt with in this way. I mean, duties of charity cover what we owe to the stranger to a great extent. Although, of course, once we've begun to interact, then there is a question of whether we're doing so justly or not. Um, I mean, I think think property transactions are a very good example of this. You know, if I take from you something which is yours without your consent, I have committed an injustice. Or if I make a bargain with you um, to, to receive something from you in exchange for something of mine and don't fulfill that bargain, again, I've committed an injustice. I've deprived you of something to which you have a right. But when you're dealing with somebody who, with whom you haven't had those sort of connections, who has no particular rights against you, and to whom you have no particular duties except for general duties of care, then uh, you've, more, as it were, stepped outside the realm of justice into the realm of, of charitable dealings. And I think this is very important. You know, the, the socialist idea is that really we're all part of a big family uh, and that we don't really own anything of our own. It's all a collective property which we, which should be distributed according to an idea of social justice this is what the idea that you get in john rawls's famous book on on justice which uh, begins from the assumption never justified and never really explained that the collective goods of a society are really um commonly in commonly owned uh, and and that the only question of justice is how to distribute them so that we don't we forget about the fact that that it was people's labor and activities and agreements which produced these goods in the first place and that i think is the great error in socialism because it it's, a, it's tantamount to the confiscate the mass confiscation of private property uh, in the interests of redistributing it mm-hmm. I, I don't know about as much about english politics but i know that in america often the call for something resembling socialism usually they won't call it socialist because that's a poison pill in american politics but it's often accompanied with a a religious appeal uh that there is something analogous to um you know the distribution of the land in the old testament going on uh you also make a critique of that particular kind of use of religious rhetoric uh would you mind laying that out for our listeners Gosh, yes. Um, well, religion, you know, the, the religion that we have inherited uh, is not unambiguous on all these questions. Uh, and of course, there, there are, in the, the parceling out of the land in the Old Testament, you're, you're dealing with a very different situation from the kind of uh, moral questions confronted by Christ in the New Testament um, in, in which it is it's not about the the claiming of land by a, a migrant people but more about the uh, uh, right dealings between people within a settled community uh, or, 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 or under a, an imperial power uh, and uh, we we now uh, you know, are up against the the 
we're up against a situation in which a great many people don't share those religious edicts but have a sentimental attachment to them uh, and if they can be invoked uh, then they often give authority to some to a pol political policy uh, even though uh, that policy is being recommended to people who don't believe in the religion and i think this is something that we have seen people finding a kind of substitute for the old christian values the value of charity in particular um, through political programs rather than through recognizing the obligation in their own private life to, to live in another way. And I, th I mean, a very good example of this is obviously the, the Good Samaritan parable. There are two ways of interpreting that parable. One, which is the, what I'd call the socialist way, which says that what the Good Samaritan did was um, to help somebody uh, regardless of the fact that he had no obligation to that person, regardless of the fact that he was from a different community with different beliefs and different culture and so on, and different ethnic background, and that really he was applying a universal principle that uh, you know, everybody should be benefited insofar as it is within our power. Uh, that's the socialist interpretation, which is, makes it into a kind of egalitarian universalist doctrine. But there's another interpretation, which is really very different, um, the opposite in a way, which is, says that when the Good Samaritan came across the, the man who'd been uh, robbed and beaten, uh, he immediately had an obligation towards this man, a, a personal obligation, because that man came into, across his path. And when, uh, so he took him to an inn uh, uh, and saw that he was okay, and came, he came back later. To, to ensure that he had been properly treated and he was getting better. In other words, he had acquired a specific obligation to a specific person, not a universal obligation to all mankind. You know, on the socialist interpretation, you could say he was wrong to go back. He should have spent that money uh, on finding another person and helping him, etc. He should really be in the business of redistributing his assets across the whole of mankind. In fact, what he was doing was... Uh, um, obeying a specific duty to a specific person and that is the opposite of the socialist conception of what our duties are mm -hmm. well when you praise markets in this book you nonetheless hold that in a good community property always comes with responsibility to absorb risk and that institutions and traditions should serve as a counterbalance to the market uh in the name of the dead and the unborn that you mentioned earlier hmm. I like the fact that this book spends about as much time criticizing socialism, which our listeners would probably expect, as it does criticizing, and I suppose, an unfettered ideology of the market, which they might not mm. expect. So talk about some of the ways in which human beings can check that market without relying too much on the plans of the state. Yes. Um, I think it's a, a fundamental to conservatism as I see it, to respect institutions, uh, and in particular, autonomous institutions that are not part of the state, like private schools, private uh, universities, uh, and private firms, clubs and community organizations, etc. You know, we all, we in Britain and America have an abundance of these things, which uh, I think must be given maximum freedom to operate according to their own principles. But they, all of them 
have a, also exert constraints on on the market. You know, um, not necessarily legal constraints, but important constraints nevertheless. Your your membership of your old school or your old university uh, creates obligations which um, mean that you don't deal with it simply as a, a market institution or, or a market firm, rather. Uh, you, you, you have a respect for it as a kind of corporate person. Uh, you make donations to it. You limit your... You try and live up to the standards that it has laid down for you. And, and the same is true, of course, of the family and... Uh, and the local communities and the churches, which all of which create obligations which are, can't be uh, can't be understood in market terms merely as uh, you know as contractual bargains, and I think um, that in that way we, especially in the Anglosphere, we build up a whole system, network of institutions which constrain the market of their own accord, uh, and I think in certain matters. We have always relied on religion to withdraw aspects of the human of human life from the market altogether. Sex is the the obvious example of this. You know, it's always been regarded as sinful to to deal with sex as though it were a market commodity, either through prostitution or through any other kind of um, you know instantaneous. Uh, uh, enjoyment uh, of something which actually is a lifelong commitment uh, and religion emphasized this uh, in the past by withdrawing sex from the market altogether it was not something to be uh, bargained with dealt with as a commodity to some extent that has broken down um, and, and it, this breakdown is having adverse effects throughout our society but nevertheless it's a very good example of the way in which we do withdraw things from the market and rely on private institutions to sustain that withdrawal. That's that's the kind of thing that I had in mind in, in, in talking about the limitations on the market. Good, good. If you would, talk for a moment about your experiences in Eastern Europe. I believe it was Poland, but I don't, I'm not open to that page right now. Uh, and the private associations that were so central to the resistance to communism there in the 1980s. Right. Yeah, well, I, I was involved well, to, to some extent in Poland and also slightly more in Czechoslovakia as it then was and to a little bit extent in Hungary too. Uh, our role was to try and encourage uh, private underground universities and educational networks uh, and publications and so on in Samizdat and all that, um, so that young people could get together and discuss um, the the matters that were, that really concerned them and, and rehearse their membership of the wider world, you know, the world in which communism was only one phenomenon uh, and in which there, in large parts of which there was real freedom of association. So uh, I got involved in all that work uh, and used to, um, help run things um, until I was arrested in Czechoslovakia, although I, I could always move freely in Poland. Um, I was very impressed then by the extent to which, um, in Poland especially, thanks to the church, people were determined to maintain contact with each other and to make these small cells of resistance, which were not in any way violent or or, or devoted to revolutionary activity, but simply uh, concerned with opening the mind 
to to the the world at large, ma- maintaining true freedom of thought and allowing themselves to hope, meanwhile, that the great oppression that lay over them would one day be lifted. I never thought it would be lifted, and to my astonishment, in 1989, it suddenly was. Very good. Uh, your preference for society and for church over state as checks on the market seems to rely in several chapters on the idea of spontaneity, among other things. Mm. What makes a human reality spontaneous as you think of it, and why isn't the state spontaneous in the same way that the Catholic Church is? Gosh, that's an interesting question. Um, well, I, I think some form some form of state is spontaneous. That is to say, all communities automatically move towards self-government and therefore towards creating the institutions and the laws which enable them to govern themselves. So, uh, uh, you know, you, there are no communities in this world where uh, which survive without a state. Uh, and um, the only question is what limits the state uh, and what secures people's general consent to it. Uh, and my view is that, uh, that people will generally consent to the state provided it withdraws from those activities which they regard as, as the concern of civil society, concern of, uh, of individual citizens combining to look after things for themselves. Uh, and, um, you know, I think in, in America there is a long tradition of people combining to look after things for themselves. Uh, where, where I was briefly in Virginia, our local village, which was only about 400 people, it had its volunteer rescue squad, uh, and uh, it had all kinds of voluntary activities centered on the churches uh, and um, clubs and societies and singing singing groups and uh, and so on. Uh, you know, these those things I think um, enable people to uh, to rejoice in each other's company without constantly passing through the uh, edicts of officialdom. Uh, uh, in Europe, uh, the situation is less happy. You know, in many parts of, of Europe, even today, you, you need a, a certificate from the state before you can do something like set up a school or whatever. Um, that is not so in America. And that, those are the kind of things that I had in mind. Okay, very good. Let's talk about multi- multiculturalism, pardon me for a moment. Uh, You caution our readers against the tendency, especially in the late modern academy, uh, which is where you and I spend a fair bit of our time, to exclude the old excluder. Philosophically and socially, what are some of the good alternatives to the curriculum policing that tends to result in that kind of counter-exclusion? Well, uh, this is is a big problem that is emerging now uh, uh, that we have always assumed that um, in the academy there is insofar as it's obtainable general general freedom of thought so you can entertain all kinds of uh, positions argue them through discuss their merits and come to a conclusion that may be entirely unorthodox. Uh, and um, this is part of our cultural inheritance. You know, this is, if you acknowledge that 
you know, our cultural inheritance is not one thing. It's a complex thing, but it, uh, it, it, part of it is the Enlightenment. We can't deny that. And the Enlightenment is what created our universities as they are today. And it created them as fora of um, open inquiry. Uh, uh, and in the, science, in the natural sciences, they have remained so because you can't make any progress in science if you don't allow differences of opinion. But in the humanities, they have become less and less so, uh, uh, more vehicles for imposing orthodoxies. Uh, and often one doesn't know quite in advance what the orthodoxy is going to be. It might change from one week to the next, but it seems to be increasingly the case that it's imposed by intimidation. You know, if you if you you've, we've seen recently, if you're not orthodox on the on the uh, position of on the question of feminism or uh, homosexuality or transgender identity whatever the thing of the day the, you know the obsession of the day might be if you're not impeccably orthodox you might get uh, essentially silenced by the student body or even um, by the authorities in the university so my view is that when this happens it is the obligation of the authorities uh, to punish those who are doing the intimidating, not those who are being intimidated. And, but it's all the wrong way round now. The punishment usually goes uh, the other way, punishing the, the unorthodox rather than the, uh, the person who's trying to silence him. Um, so when that happens, I think that means that the academic institution has essentially betrayed its mission. And the rest of us have to, <clears throat> have to think of starting again with something else you know, another kind of university or setting up another, uh, you know, free college that, that is not exposed to this kind of intimidation. Uh, uh, and I, my, my feeling is that quite a lot of the universities are in this way uh, marginalizing themselves from the community as a whole and will rapidly decline because of their, uh, their you know, because of the prevalence of censorship. It's interesting, too, because a lot of the groups that you name in the book and you just named in our conversation uh, would derive their own sense of moral place in the world from the fact that historically they have themselves been marginalized, excluded, even threatened with violence. When you've got two different camps, each claiming to be the excluded and naming mm. the other as the excluder, uh, what sorts of practices as a conservative would you recommend for talking with each other? Uh, it's an, yeah, I, I would say, first of all, a, there's a great difference between being, between having ancestors who excluded somebody and being an excluder oneself. You know, I, I'm, 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 I'm lucky that I don't have any ancestors. Uh, in the sense that all my grandparents were illegitimate, so I don't know where I came from, uh, and that was that's great because it means that nobody can accuse me of having done this or that, you know, or having ancestors who did ancestors who did this or that to some victim class. Uh, my only concern is whether I'm excluding anybody or not, um, uh, and so far I don't think I have been in the business of excluding people from any kind of debate or dialogue in my uh, in such an academic such as I have had as uh, uh, by way of an academic career but I I am very strongly aware of the 
young people today who want to exclude um, others from the from the discussion, me included, uh, and I think they are to blame. All right. We've already mentioned it briefly before, but I want to spend some significant time now on your book's strong concern for the future of the environment and at the mm. book's optimism about the potential for clean energy research. Talk a little bit about the way that conservatism and environmentalism should relate to each other here in the first half of the 21st century. Right. Well, as I um, spell it out in my book, conservatism for me has as its origins the love of home. It is about you know the inheriting a place, a culture, a community, and wanting to conserve it. Of course, to conserve it, you, you have to also to adapt it, and adaptation is uh, a fundamental part of the conservative repertoire, so to speak. Uh, and um, I think that is how we deal with environmental problems too. We don't we don't stand opposed to um, the the heat of the sun uh, threatening it with our clenched fists. You know, we we try to adapt to this to this heat by cre creating sh shade and under which we can um, uh, cool ourselves, or um, in other ways, using that the heat from the sun to warm ourselves in winter and so on. So we we have we as a species have uh, 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 that that is our great virtue, the thing that has ensured our survival even though so many other species are disappearing namely our ability to adapt to changes uh, and i think this is something that is built into the cons conservative politics as i see it too that it's a politics of adaptation not of not of radical change or destruction or replacement of one arrangement by another wholly different arrangement it's a, a politics of a, a which is is based on adapting an inherited community to the changing circumstances of its existence. And the same is true of uh, our, should be true of our response to the environment. On the matter of energy, of course, people do, uh, as we know, people have made a great thing about climate change. Um, I looked into this at one stage and was not convinced entirely that, that there was a scientific consensus about this. Though obviously there's plenty of evidence that, that that climate has changed over the years, there's undeniable evidence that we're producing carbon dioxide and other uh, agents of global warming in, in quantities the effects of which we can't be sure that we can accommodate. So you know whatever the, the scientific truth, it's quite clear that we ought to be aiming at some kind of clean energy, and. Um, the the great problem is how do you obtain this while also retaining the love of home, which is the only motive that people have for environmental protection. If you start littering your landscape with um, solar panels and uh, and wind farms and so on, so that nobody actually loves it anymore, you've you've actually ca uh, created a, a negative input into the environmental problem, not a positive one, unless you can show that you've really 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 done something about securing clean energy by doing that but but we, you as a rule you don't you know because the amounts of electricity produced are so small uh, what we need to be doing in my view is uh, is 
emphasizing and, and amplifying the research into the possibilities of nuclear fusion or other ways of trapping uh, solar energy so that it does it allow, uh, allows us both to enjoy the environment that we have uh, and also to satisfy our energy needs and this is a I would say this is a scientific matter it's not secured by people signing ludicrous treaties like the Kyoto Accords which, could, which nobody has any motive for obeying it's only it can only be done by international cooperation in the science, through the scientific community. Talk a little bit uh, about the connection between nationalism and environmentalism, because I thought that was one of the stronger points of your argument. Yeah, so uh, um, my my view is that you, we don't we don't secure our we don't protect our environment by aiming to protect the whole earth, but we do protect it if we can localize that our interest in it into that part of the earth that is ours this you know the the sense of we who we are what belongs to us what we have a responsibility for that is all important and we know this in, in england because uh, the, for 200 years we've had this uh, environmental movement here which has uh, you know, been devoted to preserving the countryside the landscape the way things look the way th uh, the the rhythm of of life and so on, uh, which actually has involved the energies of all all kinds of people, in particular of our poets and painters, uh, and also of the town planners and architects, uh, which have created a country which, although it's the most overpopulated in Europe, still actually has the the most um, livable form of landscape. And I think. Um, you know that comes from national feeling from the sense of, of of this place as a home and that's the feeling that environmentalists ought to be emphasizing but as a rule of course the environmental activists are anti-nationalists they belong to that kind of uh, cosmopolitan globalizing frame of mind which sees the nation state as a uh, as the enemy of mankind and that, that this i think has implanted a kind of contradiction in the heart of the environmental movement uh, in Europe, at least, uh, and possibly in America, too. All right. Well, after all of these discussions of sort of the big isms of our day, you begin your discussion of conservatism's truth in another place that I found surprising and delightful, and our listeners will probably find it likewise, and that's in Hegel's Phenomenology of Spirit. How mm. does Hegel's discussion of freedom inform your vision of conservatism and how does it relate to the other ideas that we've been engaging with? Well, that, that's um, yeah, a very interesting point. I, uh, what I take from Hegel is the view that freedom is not the natural condition of human beings, but, but uh, something that they achieve, that they grow into through their interactions with others. So, uh, and that interaction with others is full of conflict, conflicts and, uh, and resolutions, uh, and ultimately requires the emergence uh, of serious institutions like the family uh, and civil society and the state in order to realize itself so that our pursuit of freedom is not opposed to our uh, respect for institutions but on the contrary requires that respect so that um, the, the conservative position is not um, that of conserving institutions against 
the demand for individual freedom and liberation. It's rather defending individual freedom and the institutions that are required by it. So, uh, so that uh, the social aspect and authoritative as aspect of conservatism goes hand in hand with the individualistic uh, pursuit of, uh, you know, of emancipation. Mm -hmm. One other thread, and you didn't really tug on this one explicitly in the book, but I wanted to try it out on you, is that in Hegel's vision, uh, freedom is not a program that is laid out at the outset and then either deviated from or followed in some sort of orthodoxy, but rather it's something that unfolds precisely in the contradictions of lived experience from moment to moment. Does that part of Hegel's vision also inform your vision of conservatism? Oh yes, definitely. Uh, I mean, I I only mentioned Hegel by way of directing um, my readers <laughs> towards a huge a body of literature uh, uh, which has many, many uh, fascinating and and valid thoughts in it. Um, and yeah, the you know the Hegelian view that that conflict, opposition, uh, and dialectical the dialectical process are all necessary to human life and part of living properly, uh, but nevertheless can be reconciled with an overall uh, achievement of peace and order. That that vision is one that I share. Uh, and, um, you know, I think one of the most damaging aspects of Marxism and the Marxist type of, of, of socialism is this uh, this vision, utopian vision of a society in which all conflicts have been resolved, everything is finally clear. You know that 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 desire for the the ultimate solution of everything in a, in a in complete uh, serenity that that to me is is actually a vision of hell. Uh, that 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 real life is a matter of conflict and resolution. Of, uh, in, in individual love is like that you know it, it's full of conflicts and full of, but it's also generous with all the resolutions to them falling in love is is initially a conflicted state uh, which um, in which your opponent is the the person that you most want not to be uh, your opponent and that is resolved if you're lucky uh, and um and that uh, that that process of, of conflict and resolution is the source of all meaning in human life. Very good. I want to talk about another German who appears in a number of places in How to Be Conservative, and that is Friedrich Nietzsche. There's no single tone to your encounters with Nietzsche. In some passages, you present him as an antidote to liberal illusions. In mm. others, you use him as a cautionary tale of what happens if conservatism does not do its distinctive work. Talk to our listeners for a moment about your book's complicated relationship with Nietzsche. Well, I guess I have a complicated relationship with Nietzsche. I, um, I, I, he was a, obviously a great writer uh, and somebody who was uh, extremely provocative in, in confronting, being willing to confront us with our own illusions and with all the, the things from which you wanted to want to turn away. And in that matter, he is very useful uh, but also there is in him a, a kind of impatience with the human condition which makes him very unconservative uh, obviously the emphasis on the ubermensch you know the the superman who will transcend the human condition is something which in, 
uh, which I think of as extremely destructive. Uh, you, you shouldn't think in that way. The, 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 the way uh, of enjoying the human condition and also accepting it and making the best of it is through humble acceptance that you are part of it and that it's not for you to change your nature, it's for you to understand that nature uh, and be reconciled with it. That's, that, that's the aspect of Nietzsche which I find extremely difficult to, to take. And I think there is something essentially childish about him. You know, that, uh, His world is a womanless world, uh, and, uh, and there, is, there isn't that you know, breath of peace that comes from, uh, from the erotic, this fulfilled erotic relation in him. There's simply the urgency of the adolescent with no countervailing force. Fascinating. I want to stick with Nietzsche here as we head towards the end of the interview. You draw a distinction in your final chapter between a Nietzschean loss of faith and an Arnoldian loss of faith. Mm. Since your book at several points distances itself uh, from communities and, and states right now that attempt to govern human society by divine fiat, how should conservatives deal with the loss of faith in the world around us? Yes, uh, well, um, the Nietzschean view is not the one that I take. I mean, I think I, I'm much more like Matthew Arnold. I recognize, um, I, I, I look with grief on this loss of faith because it is a loss not just of faith, but of the um, all that has been built on it. Uh, but I recognize that, that um, you know, you can't single-handedly restore uh, faith when it has been lost all you can do is create the conditions for its rebirth and I think that is essentially what a conservative has to do uh, and one reason why we should be conserving our institutional and cultural inheritance because it, it, it contains those spaces in which faith can be re reborn uh, and um, closing them up uh, or rubbing them out uh, um, will make that rebirth impossible mm -hmm. Uh, uh, but uh, at the same time, I think we mustn't ever turn our back on our Enlightenment inheritance. Freedom of religion, freedom to dissent, to gain your faith and to lose it, uh, to discuss it, uh, uh, to laugh at it. Uh, you know, all, all these are fundamental human goods that we've achieved. Uh, and of course, in, what, in Muslim countries, these goods have not been achieved. And we're, we in Europe are under threat to a great extent from this attitude. You know, we're, we're now fully, um, they are fully installed in our communities, people who don't accept these precepts about freedom of religion and who do want to silence all debate, who can't, who can't look at their holy book and laugh at it as I uh, laugh constantly at the Bible, you know. And I think this is a, this is a, a very dangerous thing. Mm-hmm. I want to follow up on that for a moment. Uh, in a lot of circles, certainly in some of the circles I travel, the notion of cultural assimilation uh, is a, a shibboleth of sorts. If you speak too openly in favor of assimilation, there is something wrong with you morally. You seem to present in this book, and, and again, it's not in any particular chapter, but it's in places where you touch on cultural history, a notion that assimilation is actually something good to be sought rather than something to be afraid of unconditionally. Yeah. Uh, if, if I could propose a, a, a 
an extra chapter to this thing. What is the truth in assimilation? Yes. Uh, uh, okay. The truth is that we have to live together um, in the same space. And, and the the only successful way of doing this that has ever been discovered, well, there's two successful ways of doing this, I guess. One is the imperial way, I say, to impose a metropolitan authority which holds everybody in place but also allows them to, to identify themselves apart from each other. And that's the Roman Empire mm -hmm. view. Or the alternative is the nation state, where, where we live together in a territory to which we are um, jointly committed, whose, who, to whose defense uh, we, um, we are also committed. We owe a duty of defense, uh, and within which we accept a common law which which applies equally to everyone. Um, now that that's what I would call I would call it well assimilation or integration. Uh, it's compatible if you're sufficiently enlightened with um, distinct uh, religious faiths within the community. Um, as long as faiths are able to openly disagree and openly discuss their disagreements. Uh, and also par partake of a shared public culture. And that's what we've achieved in Europe. Um, but, of course, we are under pressure from Islam in that uh, although the Shiites are, are like us in this respect, the Sunnis are not. They don't seem to accept um, public criticism or discussion of their faith. They, they don't accept that uh, they're, they're living under a shared rule of law which applies equally to everyone they don't accept necessarily that they are committed to defending the country where they live and that these are dangerous developments and we're seeing the danger all around us now I've been at the wheel for most of this conversation so in the spirit of hospitality I want you to have the last word as we finish what do you want our listeners thinking about conservatism the future of human community or whatever else you want to highlight? I would like uh, American conservatives generally to think about culture, to think about art, music, and literature, uh, their place in human life, and why they are just as important uh, as the facts of economics uh, and the disputes over uh, uh, states' rights versus federal rights and so on. You know, to, to, think, to think in these broader cultural terms so that uh, the, the American conservative movement can face uh, the liberal culture uh, in, in a, from a position of equality with the, same, you know, with the same frame of reference, the same ability to see deeply into things that uh, liberals are always claiming, and um, with the arguments necessary to fight their own corner. Roger Scruton, thank you for coming on Christian Humanist Profiles. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. Listeners, I want to thank you for downloading and listening along with us. The Christian, Christian Humanist Profiles is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our audio editor is Britt Stack. And I am Nathan Gilmore with these words for you. Go in grace. Go in peace. Serve the Lord.